From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature. Real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Erin Jones. I was all mummied up in my sleeping bag, trying to stay warm. At some point in the night, I was awoken by the sound of footsteps in the snow. It's that time of year when we push against all that's human and natural to find the things that are in between. The unknowable things. The dark things. The things under the bed that come out when you switch off the lamp. In the regular world, people don't talk to you about ghosts and demons and the lingering supernatural. But here, on this creepy annual human nature tradition, we never have a shortage of people who found the inexplicable in between. It's out there, y'all. And some people go out to find it on purpose like Eric Krasanek and Lisa Lucas. There's this thing about living in central Wisconsin or even northern Wisconsin where you're surrounded by woods and it's overcast for all of winter and there's not a lot of sunlight. And there's a lot of legend and lore about ghosts. So growing up in Wisconsin, I've just always been fascinated by ghost stories or legends along those lines. I tell this story reluctantly when other people are telling their ghost stories because, uh, well, because it scared me a lot when it happened and it's um, not comfortable to think about and because I don't want people to think I'm a crazy person. I first moved into this house in 2004. It was still very much an unfinished house the first time I saw it. You'd go inside and there's no flooring. There's maybe some subfloor. Uh, there's some wood floors that are just scuffed up and clearly in the middle of the thing. There's no walls, no drywall. So where there is insulation, it is exposed. There's no ceiling. There's, <laughs> there's uh, intermittent electricity. Yeah, it was, uh, it was rustic living. There was an architectural element on the in one of the bedrooms upstairs, wherein there was a uh, a sink. That sink uh, was rumored to <laughs> be where uh, the designer slash owner uh, would develop photos. So I became interested in the history of the house because it turns out moving into this house in the community, you mention it to people, they know the house. They have lived in the community for a while and they know exactly which house it is and they remember the individual that lived there. And the story behind the house is that there was um, a man named John Pliska who a couple decades earlier had had this girlfriend from the next town that he was crazy in love with and built this house to propose to her with. So he built this house and then he asked her to marry him and she said no. And she ran off with another man. So John Pliska just became this very angry, very bitter man. He had a nickname. Some people called him Junk Man John uh, because he worked on small appliances in the community. That was kind of how he made his money. He would fix 
things that were wrong in houses around town, try to work out payment with them. And if they couldn't, the legend goes, he would offer to take pictures of, uh, in lieu of payment of the housewife that maybe needed the work done. And that apparently is what the dark room was used for, was developing some of these photos. You're saying like, <laughs> like lewd pictures of housewives when they couldn't pay. Yes, that is apparently uh, the predominant rumor around town. Because he did all these types of small appliance repair and different uh, kind of handiwork. He would, I guess, take a lot of the old stuff and just leave it in the yard for parts if he needed it. He started getting fines from the city that he needed to clean up his property. And he wouldn't pay them. And he actually took the city to court and fought that it was his First Amendment right, a freedom of speech, to do whatever he wanted with his lawn and his property. And apparently he won and was able to get a lot of those uh, fines dismissed. He was kind of known as like this cranky old man. He believed that the city was fascist. And so in protest, every 4th of July, uh, he would wave a, or he would hang up, not an American flag, but a Nazi flag on the front of the house as a protest to the city. Yeah, so it was a very famous house in town. One issue was, though, he didn't pay his property taxes. And that is ultimately what the city used to repossess his house and take it away. As the story goes, one day, I guess he just couldn't take it anymore. Apparently, John believed that if he could not have his house, no one should be able to have his house. And uh, Brett actually talked to a firefighter that responded that day in a bar once. And this, he said he remembers seeing John walking from his parents' house to the house that morning with a big canister of gasoline he was walking and carrying. And he stood in the kitchen and lit the house on fire. He poured gasoline down on the first floor and started the fire and then proceeded to the second floor to pour gasoline and start the fire. Which, I'm not an arsonist, I don't claim to be, <laughs> is, I believe, counterintuitive <laughs> to what you should do in safe arson. and he never escaped. A couple of years later, my friend Brett bought the house. So um, we needed a place to stay. Brett's girlfriend at the time, Laura, had an instance where she was walking up that stairway that I had mentioned, and she was alone in the house, and she felt someone grab her ass. Like, quite clearly felt a hand grab her butt. She had lived in there and kind of knew all the stories and everything, and she was like, I think she said, she shouted out, God damn it, John, stop it. <laughs> Don't touch me. Knock it off, you creepy old bastard, or something like that. And uh, that was it. Like she, There was kind of this joking thing, like we lived in the haunted house and ultimately felt kind of innocuous or something along those lines. We had a, another female roommate one time Amber and she she had things where she'd like 
see, feel like she saw someone walk by, you know, a reflection in the window, but there was no one else in the house. Oh, or she'd be upstairs watching TV and, like, hear someone moving stuff around downstairs and come down and no one else is in the house. As I got into this house and its legend and lore, and I got, I became really kind of obsessed with this individual and I was just fascinated by all these different things in his life and how he became kind of a living legend or punchline in the community. I became really interested in maybe what his motivations were or what happened to him, what was his family. And so I, I was in this creative writing class in undergrad and I became interested in writing a story about him and the house. And so as part of it, I decided to reach out and try to find his family members. And I found that he had a brother, called the number in the phone book. And during this, I, I was doing the research and I realized that the anniversary of the death, his death, was coming up. But I think it was a four-year anniversary of when John Pliska had died. We were trying to figure out what to do with it because John Pliska had kind of become like this legend in our minds at that point. So I don't remember who suggested it, but somehow we got this notion that we should get a Ouija board and try to call John Pliska uh, to us. Uh, I've always been good at ideas, so it was mine. Every good story has a Ouija board in it, right? Um, so, so we got the Ouija board and we were in the bedroom. It was me and Eric in the bedroom and um, I, I was kind of just like teasing him at this point. I was like, oh, we're going to see John Pliska. I can't wait. I've heard so much about him. <laughs> we're just up in my room. Uh, only people in the house. And we're like, it's dark. Eric started to get really freaked out by just like the notion of it. And he was like, we have to stop. I'm super freaked out about doing this. I had just gotten the Ouija board out. I was like, no, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And I was kind of just egging him on. Uh, maybe, you know, we don't have to do this. We don't have to do the Ouija board tonight. This, you know, it was kind of a stupid idea. Ouija boards are dumb anyway, kind of thing. Like he just looked really pale and he looked really nervous. And so I said, okay, okay, we won't do it. We'll put it back. So we ended up not doing that. And then so I put the Ouija board away, and then we had decided to just lay down and take a nap. And we're facing each other in bed talking and that. And I don't know, we're talking about whatever, what we're going to do um, tomorrow or something like that. We're talking about John Pliska and, you know, what it was like when he died. And all of a sudden... And then all of a sudden... She kind of looks towards the corner of the room and her eyes get really big and she quickly throws the covers over her head and curls up into kind of a ball, just shaking what seems like uncontrollably and kicking intermittently, like kicking her right foot. I'm like, is she having a seizure? What's going on? I have no idea what's going on. And so it freaks me out. I felt something touch 
my foot at the bottom of the bed. It was like a hand grabbed my foot. And I looked up and there was an old man standing at the edge of the bed with a very weird smile on his face. So I'm just like, after, like, I'm like, are you okay? Like, and then I get under the covers and I'm like, try and be like, holding her, are you, are you okay? And she's, she can't talk. She's just like, shakes her head viciously, <laughs> like, conjunctionally, no. Like, clearly she is not okay. And all while she's still shaking, but also like kicking every once in a while. I just, I'm, I remember my blood just chilling. It was like ice cold. Okay, well, should we go? And she nods, you know, very emphatically that, yes, we should go. And I was like, okay, we'll go to your place, count of three, we'll, we'll get out of the bed and go downstairs to your car and we will go. And so, one, two, three, get out. I jumped up. I didn't say a word. I jumped up and I ran out of the house as fast as I could. And I noticed while getting out of the bed that, like, I smell, like, wood smoke, and which was weird because <laughs> there was no fire. I think that night or, like, the next day, I had drawn a picture of the man that I saw because I couldn't get it out of my head. But it was really scary to me, so I put a Santa hat on the picture. And then a couple of weeks later, Eric, you know, he was still doing a ton of research about John Pliska and about the house. And I think he got in contact with, like, John's sister or something. And um, his sister had brought, like, a small box of John's stuff. And included was it was um, John's license. And we had never seen a picture of John Pliska before. We had no idea what he looked like. And that was the moment my stomach really dropped because when you had when I had his driver's license photo and put it next to the picture Lisa drew, it was almost identical. Like, it was this, this white hair, this, these blocky glasses, kind of a longer, craggly face, and essentially it looked exactly like what Lisa had drawn. So I definitely got my foot grabbed by John Pliska, who burned that house down and died inside of it. And I don't think I ever went back in that house again. Eric lived in the house for a few more months, during which he and Lisa conducted their relationship entirely at her house. Years later, when he needed a cheap place to stay, Eric moved back in with Brett. By then, the house was more finished. And as far as he knows, the ghost of John Pliska stayed quiet. But whether you seek them out or not, the spirits are all around, even in the remote wilderness. Zach Wallace is a wildlife biologist. And scientists, they don't believe. But that doesn't matter to the ghosts. This was the winter of 2010. We got to live inside the Bob Marshall Wilderness in a wilderness cabin and trap links to put collars on them for research. 
So it was an intensive kind of process. We like hiked in in the summer and cut a winter's worth of firewood. We like packed up all our supplies and had them horse packed in before it snowed. And then after it snowed in January, we drove to then at the trailhead. We snowmobiled in as far as we could. We hit our snowmobiles and then we snowshoed in two days to get to this cabin and we stayed there for a couple months. And this was me and my friend Mike, who was my field partner, and he's a really cool guy. He's like uh, 30 years older than me, and he's taught me a lot, of, a lot of cool natural history, and he's a great woodsman and outdoors person. So we're in there for two months, based out of this cabin. It's at Schaefer Meadows Ranger Station, which is like a bustling place in the summer, but nobody's there in the winter. I mean, no one's in the whole wilderness in the winter, and it's one of the biggest wilderness areas in the U.S., so basically every day we'd get up, split up, snowshoe 20 miles, check our lynx traps. I mean, we'd spend from before dark to after dark out snowshoeing, checking our traps. It was interesting. It was kind of like people say with meditation where you meditate long enough and then all the thoughts empty out of your brain. That's definitely how it was, just snowshoeing alone all day. And then we'd come back and get up and do it again, and it was awesome. So the season went well, we caught some lynx, and towards the end of the season, we had a satellite phone and we were getting news that one of Mike's friends was not doing well, so he wanted to go out and kind of say goodbye to this guy who was a mentor of his, another like Forest Service guy. And so we arranged for Mike to snowshoe out and my friend Luke to snowshoe in and finish up the season. And it was getting to be the end of March by then and the snow was kind of getting rotten and crusty, and we knew the grizzly bears would come out soon. We'd have to stop trapping because we used bait. So that's the end of the season every year when the bears wake up. Anyways, we agreed Mike was going to hike out, Luke was going to hike in and, and replace Mike. And so that was my one night alone in the cabin, which I didn't really think anything of it. You know, I didn't, the whole winter, I didn't feel worried about anything even though we were in a really remote situation. So, you know, we went and checked our traps and said goodbye. Mike hiked out, and Luke wasn't going to get in until the next evening because it took him more than a day to hike in. And so I spent that night alone in the cabin, and it was getting pretty cold even though it it was spring. So I was sleeping downstairs on this little bed. I was all mummied up in my sleeping bag trying to stay warm, At some point in the night, I was awoken by the sound of footsteps in the snow. And it was getting to be spring, so, you know, the snow would kind of melt out with the sun on it every day, and then at night it would still get really cold and a crust would form. So it's really loud that time of year, and you're post-holing in the snow, and there's this icy crust on top. So I was awoken by this slow sound of footsteps. I could hear them from a long ways off because it's dead silent. I heard them slowly approach and then pass the cabin. So across this big meadow and then past the cabin and then down into the river drainage. It's the middle fork of the Flathead River there. And I just lay there and listened to them. And I was kind of scared at the time, but I didn't think of anything paranormal. My real concern was like, 
oh shoot, it's the first grizzly bear of the season that's woken up. We've got like pieces of beaver carcasses and snowshoe hairs and deer legs out in the yard that we're using to bait our traps. And the bear is going to come and get into that and try to get into the cabin. And, you know, so I'm laying there still waiting for it to go by. And I'm like, okay, good. Coast is clear. It didn't try to break into the cabin. I'm fine. And the other thing is I was like, okay, I'll figure out what it is in the morning. Because we've been in there for two months and it's like, you know, we'd talk to each other at night, but basically all you do is snow track. So I had no doubt. I'll wake up in the morning, I'll look at the tracks and I'll know, okay, it was a moose, maybe it was a bear, but I can know for sure what this was. And so I got back to sleep, woke up, was like, oh yeah, I remember that thing that happened last night, you know? And I went outside the cabin and it was like the snow had melted and smoothed over with a crust and there was no track in sight. So I was like, Okay. I knew it passed between the ranger cabin where we were living and um, the cookhouse where the kitchen is. And there was not a track anywhere in that area, just a smooth crust of snow. That kind of freaked me out a little bit. I was like, that's just weird though. What was it and what made that sound? And After that, I didn't really think anything of it. Luke arrived the next evening. We were really busy. We packed up all the traps, and uh, we hiked out of there, and that was the end of the season. So we hike out, we snowshoe out, dig our snowmobiles out of the snow, spend a long time trying to get them started, drive those to the truck, get in the truck, and drive home. And the first place we went was to Luke's house, and he lives with his folks in the Swan Valley in Montana. And Luke's a wilderness ranger, and his dad was a wilderness ranger. So we get there, and Steve and Sharon Lamar, that's Luke's folks, you know, made us our first decent meal in months, and we're catching up and joking around. And, and one of the first things Steve says, Luke's dad, he's like a Western Montana history buff, you know, obsessed with the kind of lore and history of the Forest Service. And he goes, so did you see the ghost of Schaefer Meadows? I was like, what are you talking about? I'd never heard of anything like that. And then he reaches into his bookshelf and he pulls out this children's book that someone wrote about the ghost of Schaefer Meadows. And the cover of the book is a painting of an apparition walking between the ranger's cabin and the cookhouse. That was when I began to think that maybe I'd had an encounter with the ghost of Schaefer Meadows. Monica Leininger grew up in Casper, Wyoming. You know, land of the friendly ghosts. So I had a couple of really young ghost experiences. And one really memorable one was at this house we lived in in Casper. And my sister and I were both really young. We were sharing a room at the time. I think I was about five and my sister was seven. But my mom had received this glass blue elephant as a gift, and she decided to put it in my sister and I's room. And the first night that it was in there, 
I was up in her top bunk, and my parents were out in the living room watching TV. And out of nowhere, we heard just this loud thumping, like the house started to shake, and like this elephant trumpeting is what it sounds like. And I just have this very vivid memory of me being in my sister's bunk and covering my ears and her and I looking each other in the eyes and just screaming. My mom and dad are out in the living room. They hear this crazy sound coming from my sister and I's room. My mom runs full speed into our room and it was like a bubble that popped. As soon as she'd come through the doorway, the sound was gone, the shaking was gone, and it was just quiet. We had had other stuff happen in the house. Doors would open, things would be moved, but my mom decided to sell the glass blue elephant, so maybe it still lives on somewhere. My mom, she was working at the time at the Mercer house in Casper, and it's this really old, creepy house. My mom's office was in the upstairs, and we were talking about the, how the place was haunted. And I watched the doorknob turn and push open with nothing behind it. I was just sort of like, hey, Mrs. Mercer, because that's what everyone around, around the Mercer house would call the ghost. And then in middle school, the Mercer house had three different buildings, and I was in the second building, which was empty. I lock up the doors and leave, and right as I'm like two steps away from that door, I hear like, boom, like a fist on the glass panel above the door. And in the third house, I was walking up the stairs with this kid. And this kid turns around and says to me, who's that behind you? And I look behind me and there is no one behind me. And the kid said, there's a guy back there. I just had an awareness of ghosts, and that really scared me. And so I think I maybe just wanted to put forth that I wasn't scared of you. Even though you were scared. I was scared, yeah. But I didn't want the ghosts to know that. So I think just the more I could address it, the more... I could be aware of it and not let it get to me. And then when she was a teenager, Monica's family moved into a new house. And here, it was like all the ghosts of her childhood crystallized into one. That house that we'd lived in in Casper while I was in high school was, it was actually an abandoned house when we first got it. I remember when we first went in there when I was a kid and the whole place was just a mess. You know, there was furniture left there, clothes left there, the walls were spray painted, the wallpaper was peeling. It was just kind of just a frame of the house, the house it was. Yeah. 
While I was in high school, I was a kid in Casper. I was getting in a fair amount of trouble. And my mom has this friend. uh, She's a really wonderful Native American woman. And my mom asked her to come over and sage the house. I think she was kind of worried at some point that I was hanging out with some bad characters and I was bringing bad vibes back to the house. This Native American woman that my mom knows is just really, really sensitive to things outside of this dimension. She's always been able to interact with the paranormal. My mom's friend told her that there were no ghosts in the house except for one, and my mom was expecting it to be, like, in my room. But my mom told me that her friend said that there was a man that stood outside the door of my bedroom. He would always get really, really concerned if I wasn't home. But when I was home, everything seemed fine. But when Monica moved away for college and she skipped the dorms and moved into a house, the Casper ghost came with her. I moved in and I had a roommate. He was pretty cool. He was out of town a lot, though. I was still kind of a reckless young teenager. You know, would throw some parties and I would have, you know, some boys over... And I can remember I was up late with this one boy just sitting on my couch. And it was probably at like three in the morning, four in the morning or something. I'd asked him to sing me a song. He sang me this song. And then immediately after, two paintings fell off the wall. And he was so freaked out by it. And we didn't hang out much again after that. And then this other time, I had this guy over. We're in my room. We were kissing. (laughs) My roommate was out of town. At the same time, him and I both look up because we see these bright flashing lights at the threshold to my bedroom. And my bedroom was at the back of this hallway, so it couldn't have been a window or a car driving by. But we kind of both think nothing of it, and we go back to kissing. Then we both see it again. At the same time, we both look up. It was like someone was standing at my doorway with two LED flashlights, turning them on and off. But when we look up, the lights would be gone. And I was really freaked out, and so I get up, and I'm making sure all the doors were locked, all the doors were locked, like my friend didn't sneak in and was messing with me or anything. But I'm just really freaked out, so at that point, I go to bed. But in the morning, I wake up, and I distinctly remembered 
turning off all the lights the night before. All the lights are on in my house. The bathroom fan's on, my TV's on. And it was just so strange, because once again, my roommate wasn't home, no one was home. And it really freaked me out. These two instances reminded me of when I was in Casper in high school and just that one ghost guy or whatever we want to call him that would hang outside my door. So I didn't know if it was related to that. Once my friend and I were at my house and we had gotten back from a bike ride we were out sitting on the stoop drinking a beer and there was one light inside the living room that was on and out of nowhere we see this like shadow come and block the light that's pouring out onto the stoop from inside the living room her and i both look up and then the light comes back And it almost felt like whatever was standing there at the door just wanted to be with us, but couldn't come outside the door. It made me just have the same feeling of that ghost man wanting to be around me. Still, even when she moved again, the ghost followed her. I'd moved from that house. So I was at a different apartment and I'd finally got my first serious boyfriend (laughs) and he came over to my apartment. I can remember that from across the room, my guitar loudly strummed itself. And it was really, really weird. He played guitar at the time, and so he just went over and picked up the guitar and made me laugh and pretend like nothing had happened because he knew I was spooked out over ghosts. For a while, when I was in my undergrad and my roommate was never home at that house, I wouldn't want to stay there alone. And it was something that I felt like really controlled me. But I think that I am in a different place right now to where if I had those situations, I would feel more confident and not afraid to be alone all the time. You know, you grow up and you feel a lot more secure being alone. So come at me, ghosts. (laughs) Oh, no. It's been seven years since Monica's been haunted. Doing this episode every year has changed how the human nature team sees those things that inhabit the in-between. Last year, when we interviewed ghosts, it opened a whole other world to me. For me, it's just reconfirming what I've always known is out there, and then it feels comforting to know that other people are experiencing the same thing. That's our digital producer, Anna Rader. 
So I had never had a direct experience, so I would consider myself maybe on the believey side of agnostic. But then when we did the in-between two and I had my own direct experience, that turned me into a believer. That's executive producer Micah Schweitzer. You can catch our previous in-between episodes on our website, humannaturepodcast.org, by searching in-between. Our storytellers were Eric Krizanik, Lisa Lucas, Zach Wallace, and Monica Leininger. If you've had a supernatural experience, we want to hear it. Get in touch on our website, humannaturepodcast.org. I'm Erin Jones. This episode was produced by Greg Ronco and myself. Our theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human nature.